Welcome to Consider the Constitution, the podcast that cuts through the noise and provides insight into constitutional issues that directly affect every American. Hosted by Dr. Katie Crawford Lackey and featuring interviews with constitutional scholars, policy and subject matter experts, heritage professionals, and legal practitioners, we examine the rights and responsibilities of citizenship. Consider the Constitution is brought to you by the Robert H. Smith Center for the Constitution at James Madison's Montpelier. Hello and welcome to this episode of Consider the Constitution. I'm your host, Dr. Katie Crawford Lackey, Director of the Robert H. Smith Center for the Constitution at James Madison's Montpelier. In previous episodes, we've discussed the drafting of the founding document at the 1787 Constitutional Convention. We've learned about the original seven articles that form the blueprint of our system of government. And we've also learned about the ratification of the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments. Today, we're discussing the role of news media in our democracy. We are joined today by the Honorable Adam Belmar, who has advised major corporations, coalitions, associations, NGOs, nonprofits, and charities on communications, marketing, legislative affairs, and more. Over the course of his career, Mr. Belmar has served as Deputy Assistant to the President of the United States and Deputy Director of White House Communications for Production. He also held the role of Senior Producer at ABC News, running the Washington, D.C. Bureau of ABC's Good Morning America and the Sunday morning public affairs show This Week with George Stephanopoulos. Adam, thank you for joining us on this episode of Consider the Constitution. Thank you, Katie. It's an honor to be here with you at Montpelier. Before we dig into the role of news media in the modern context, I want to rewind the clock to the summer of 1787 as delegates from the different states are gathering in Pennsylvania, specifically in Philadelphia, in the State House, what we now refer to as Independence Hall. The initial goal of this meeting what we refer to as the Constitutional Convention, was to improve the Articles of Confederation. That was the document that established the original government structure during the American Revolution. However, this system isn't working so well in the years after independence is achieved. Delegates begin to realize that instead of improving the Articles of Confederation, a new structure of government is needed. Throughout the summer, they draft the U.S. Constitution. When the convention convenes that May, the delegates agreed to keep the proceedings a secret to allow them to discuss freely. Now, this wasn't unusual to keep such political gatherings secret at that time. But can you imagine it? You have 50-some-odd men locked in a sweltering hot room all summer. They're unable to talk about what they've been doing all day. Now, James Madison is writing to his friend Thomas Jefferson, who was not able to attend the convention. Madison is almost apologizing for not divulging the details of the discussions. Madison explains that confidentiality was necessary to secure unbiased discussion within doors and to prevent misconceptions and misconstructions. The delegates are concerned that the proceedings will be leaked to the press and potentially hamper their progress. And as Madison himself stated, secrecy, in his opinion, allowed people to exchange ideas and compromise in a way that perhaps they wouldn't have if the convention was widely publicized. Now, this is an interesting starting point for our conversation today as we think about the importance of news media throughout American history. News outlets report on important events, politics, etc. They disseminate civic information, and they also function as a tool in holding our government accountable. 
Adam, based on your experience in the field, can you talk more about the power of the media on democracy? The power of the media on democracy is so important to forming opinions and understanding the intentions and the impacts of the policies that our elected officials come up with and implement. The news media was so important that it was codified in our Constitution, in the First Amendment. We know that the nature of learning in a disassociated country where we didn't have the connectivity that we have today, where newspapers informed small groups and radio stations as they came up reached only so far that the ability to share information brought people closer together. And the veracity of that information became incredibly important to consider the source of where it was coming from and the responsibilities of those who undertook to be journalists to share both sides. And oftentimes there are more than two sides. And it became a part of our culture. And it has remained that way, even though it has proliferated into so many different things in so many different ways that we communicate here in the 2020s. But even if we were to roll back the clock 100 years to the roaring 1920s, news media, a form of media, was quintessential to being part of the civic fabric and understanding what was going on with those you didn't agree with or in places that maybe you'd never been but were also a part of this American experience. As I noted earlier, you were the deputy assistant to the president of the United States and deputy director of White House Communications for Production. And I'm curious to learn more about the messaging dynamic between the president, the executive branch, and the citizens, and why messaging matters so much when it comes to government and public policy. As I consider now the importance of messaging and communication from the executive branch of our government, it is fundamentally about trying to help people understand what the goals are and to recognize what the issue of the day is. For me, It was as much about matching the visuals to the actual words that were spoken because no longer was the voice of the president heard. It was headlines and pictures that flew across the air and the television screens. And oftentimes we find that people will watch things with the sound down. When they all look the same, it's easy to fall back into, I know what that person must be saying. So bringing forward a new medium and helping to leverage it to make the case to the American people was vitally important. But the news media ultimately was the arbiter of what rose to the top. What were we going to talk about? So setting that stage and bringing the trappings of the presidency and displaying them are important from a production perspective. And it's funny how even as the media has developed in our methods of media from the internet to the radio to television, our presidents and our elected officials have understood this for a very long time. Ceremony, pomp and circumstance, honoring dignitaries and allies, and even the visual trappings of what it is to be in conflict or at war mean everything to the communication to everyone else. We are a constitutional republic, not a direct democracy. So when I was working with the President of the United States or working at Good Morning America or even the public affairs show at ABC News, always the shared goal was to inform, to be accurate, 
to not take people out of context and to bring voices that were needed into the conversation. Media is a two-way street. It's always been one. And the gatekeepers there have changed. It doesn't mean that if you're an actor on the national stage that you can't try to utilize the media or create your own media. We see that so much more in the modern era than we did previously. And news has always, hopefully at its highest, been about bringing truth and accuracy. They weren't made up. We've seen scandals all across our news history of individuals who have invented a source or created a narrative that bore no basis in fact, and they can be very compelling. I think about some of the parlance of Washington, a former Secretary of Defense who used to say, a lie can run around the world in the time it takes the truth to get its shoes on. That's more true now than ever. And I think as our conversation, as we consider the Constitution, as we consider democracy, we're going to consider sources because we're in a different world now where that responsibility for veracity and truth and how much confidence you have in your media has now been bestowed upon the shoulders of each individual. You raise an important point about sources and news media in the way that you refer to it in its, I would argue, best form. It's informing citizens about current events, about things going on in their government. How do we, as average folks who obviously receive some type of media every day, likely, determine what is news we can actually depend on versus what is just rhetoric or propaganda or misinformation? And how do we go through the process of ensuring that we're getting accurate information? The sad news here is there is no easy answer to that question. Our founding fathers understood that a free press was foundational to a thriving democracy. That fourth estate, as it's often called, is part of a checks and balances that we've heard scholars discuss on this podcast in previous episodes. I think now that media has subsumed the free press, it's now just an element of media from social media to every other kind of user-generated content, it gets increasingly hard to know where to place your trust. The institutions that have long held that public trust are ones we can look at as guidance. And I, I encourage my colleagues, and when I speak in classes at universities, I encourage people to think about what is the Washington Post or the LA Times or the Times-Picayune, the New York Times, what are they doing? They've put a construct in place to cross-check what they're doing and to make sure that they are, and this is really where you get the problem, right? Are they filtering? They may well be. And maybe you believe that you want to go right to the source. Politicians often say we're going to go over the head of the media. But when you get beyond those who are classically trained in synthesizing issues and bringing consideration to a story with elegance, with intent to inform, you're suddenly drinking from that proverbial fire hose. And you don't really know what is the source of where all this information is coming from. So as we think about how do we find the truth, we have to assign value and credibility to the sources that we look at. That's, that's an issue for every generation. There was no TikTok. 
there was no Facebook, no YouTube, no AI, even when you and I were born. And yet there was disinformation. There was all kinds of efforts to create a narrative that was going to serve a political end. But for the basic right of a citizen to know who's on their ballot, where they might vote, when that critical day is, or what their representatives have truly been discussing, institutions have placed value there. I I look at the federal government, the federal printing office, the records that have been made public, although slowly, in printed, written form, that historians like yourself have to go through in order to create, over time, an accurate picture, the order of events. Things are moving so much faster today. It's hard to place things in the proper order. And I think another thing to consider as we look at the media and keep ourselves safe and well-informed is what are the goals? How much of the media that we consume is about sheer consumption, remuneration, profit, advertising? Are those things bad? I don't submit that they are, but they can run counter to that need for accurate, timely information that informs And we've got to think long and hard about where we place our trust. And when everything is free, we tend to think now that we are the product. We know about data. We know that the actions of large groups of people can be mapped and understood. But where are we in that pie? Where are we in that cycle? We've got to own it ourselves. We have to bring that responsibility where it belongs now to each one of us. And I think that's the challenge. And it starts with education, not just formal education, but reading multiple sources. You note social media and the speed at which we get information today. And obviously it's very different than in 1787. It's very different than even several decades ago. And this is a concern that Madison had in regard to factions and the impulse of passions is what he called it. He very much prized logic and reason. And he felt that if passions could be quieted, then logic would prevail. And I think what we see with social media, for example, by turning on our computers, our laptops, our tablets, we have instant access to information. And Perhaps this has prevented us from, well, perhaps not just us, but also politicians from really considering issues. And now we're just reacting. And I'm curious if you can shed some insight onto how you see social media impacting communication today and how our government legislates. I think the anecdote that you shared at the beginning of the show about James Madison's reticence in that hot summer of sharing information, even with a trusted friend in Thomas Jefferson, that is one of the easiest things to understand that to bring forward honest conversation means seclusion at times. And that's what elected leaders are expected to do, to not have absolutely everything out there to be misunderstood, but like Madison, to consider both sides. When we consider the Constitution here, We know, as Dr. Koss said, it's driving us at every turn towards understanding minority rights and finding compromise that moves all of us forward. In the element of media, when we are bombarded and choose to merely react, we're driven by our emotions and that passion. 
And even news organizations have to guard against that. If they are merely reacting to their competitors or some third party that is bombastically driving a narrative, then no one is agenda setting and no one is furthering this idea for clarity. And so as it leans on all of us individually, because we have this more or less unfettered access to all this information, the education of all of us to consider that source gets more and more important. And you know what's another hard part about all of this is that our economy is driven to find profit, which is great. I'm a capitalist. But if you are out there seeking truth and you can't afford to get beyond the paywall and you're only able to hear from people who maybe don't have the highest ideals or don't have the highest consideration for sourcing, then you are left with a lesser quality of news and you're more susceptible to being moved by the ebb and the reactionary flow in our new media world. There certainly is a balance that you have to strike in regard to media. It can be very empowering. We've seen how social media has given folks who perhaps have never had a voice a platform, a platform to talk about their experiences, to collectively gather to support an issue that's important to them. So in that regard, media has the power of furthering democracy. Absolutely. It is a great empowerment to individuals. But as you also noted, access and having to pay or the other barriers that you have to navigate in order to get the reliable information. And it does result in certain people getting different levels of accurate information. I'm wondering if you can talk about the importance of local media. How is that impacting democracy broadly? Having this lack of access to local newspapers versus how we receive our news on a national level? Well, let me give you a personal story of my own career as a journalist. I started in local news covering another Commonwealth of Massachusetts in their seat of government in Boston, where I went to the university. And the people who served every part of that city were tightly knit together by competing media, news media, television stations, radio stations, newspapers. You didn't have to go far to find a firsthand source or those who were promulgating policy who were willing to debate it. And that was a very rewarding thing, I think, for that community. It kept that culture tight. As I moved on in my career, I started to work for a much larger corporation that had interests in local news media in most of the big markets in America, from New York to L.A. to Denver, Dallas, Pittsburgh. And the local journalism that they funded, made possible, sustained, was just a mirror of all of that. At arm's reach, aggregating the news, the interests, the reactions, the feelings, the pulse of that community. And then in my career, I went to Good Morning America. And by its very name, it was a saying hello and waking up in a cultural way, the entire nation, even with our time differences from East to West Coast. But There was no on-the-ground reach in every one of those communities, but there was an extension reach. There were stations there that we talked to, newspapers. All of that network of journalism that existed beneath it enabled us to bring local stories to a broader audience. And you fast forward 
2023. And large corporations have deep reach into the media in certain markets where there is great profit to be had. But the underlying undergirding foundation of journalism has withered. The newspapers are gone. The television stations are not doing news, certainly not the way they did. And we start to think about local news going away. We don't know where to go to find it. And I'm thinking hard about libraries and the the resources that exist in our communities that while they may be funded well or underfunded, the source material for them is under attack or being withered away. And I think when we talk about local journalism, we're in fresh new times, and it's not just the United States. Media doesn't stop at our shores, just as politics no longer does. We are a global community with sources who seem as present today in our town or county as that local news media did. But who are they? What do they want? And how do I assign value to that? That's a collective struggle. It makes me want to consider the source, consider our Constitution even more as a guiding principle to how we go forward. In thinking about how we go forward, what do you foresee in terms of the media's role in public discourse? I have nothing but the highest regard for our historians and our journalists. They are looking at and writing the first draft of history. And I believe that American citizens really have more of an obligation to educating the next generation. The reading that goes on at home and the way that we assign value, not just for ourselves, but for our children, for our grandchildren, is a path that lights the way. And if we devalue an honest and free press and overly value a user-generated content, then we've, we've gotten out of balance. We have stopped recognizing the things that have always kept us together. Communication is visual, it's auditory, it's the written word, and as you discuss with Jade Ryerson, it's about coming together to assemble freely, peaceably, to protest or to support, and understanding that those things took place, and not telling stories about how much larger they were than they, than they actually were, or that it never happened. That kind of media is antithetical to democracy. And when we see it or we hear it and we know it to be untrue, I think as citizens, as we assign value, we've got to show it ourselves. Where is it that we know truth? And are we willing to stand up and say, yeah, that is correct? Or are we going to sit back and wait for some third party to do it? Well, this is a self-serve world now. And I think we need to serve the greater good, the democracy that was created in 1787 demands it of all of us. So the media and democracy intertwined, incredibly important to each other, but never so weak as when we turn away from the foundational elements of what the rights and responsibilities of citizenship are. I very much appreciate your focus on what our role is as citizens. And that's a theme that we've seen throughout past episodes as well is not just what are our rights as American citizens, but what is our duty? What is our responsibility? And with this conversation about the media, it sounds like we really do have a civic responsibility, particularly in this age, to be informed, to consider our sources, 
to inquire. I think we've lost a bit of that curiosity, perhaps, in wanting to dig deeper about, well, is this actually accurate? How do I know that? So I do very much appreciate your thoughts on that. And I'm wondering if you have any parting thoughts before we conclude our episode today. I would say that consider the Constitution podcast and the mission of the Robert H. Smith Center for the Constitution at James Madison's Montpelier is about bringing learned people together and educating everyone without bias. And I think that's why this podcast is going to shine a light for people, a beacon to come, to learn, to hear, and then take action for yourself and understand how better can I be a citizen? That's what we can do. And I feel very good about using new media to share. And I think that this podcast and what you're doing is a testament to that. So thank you for having me here today. Thank you. Your words are very inspiring, especially as we think about citizenship being an active role. Being part of democracy is not something that we do passively. We all have a role to play. And that's what makes us a stronger nation. I want to thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and your experiences with us today on Consider the Constitution. And thank you to everyone listening to this podcast. I hope you'll subscribe and share this show with your family and your friends. And join us next week as we consider the Constitution. 